0: Welcome, everyone, to Natural Gas World's In a Nutshell podcast. Thierry Bros, Professor at Sciences Po-Paris and sophie Corbeau, Research Scholar on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs. Join NGW once more to to discuss key developments impacting the natural gas market. Welcome, both. How are you doing? Very well.
1: Winter has started.
0: Absolutely, yes. Right. Yeah. Winter has certainly feels like it's started. So the withdrawal season in Europe is is now underway. Um, since we last spoke, um, what have you seen the market doing? And um, in terms of demand and supply, and uh, what is the outlook looking forward for, for the winter season? Uh, Thierry, would you like to start? yes and um, good morning so
2: what we've seen since last time is storage filling up and as you rightly stated uh, the uh, withdrawal has uh, started uh, slightly earlier than last year uh, so we are we started the uh, winter later but with 99 percent storage full which is uh, i would say uh, something we have to uh, Thank the EU Commission because they've implemented this new regulation stating that storage operator must be 90% full. So we've achieved it. And and, and I think that's also where we can also discuss the link between regulation and the industry. So regulation, easy uh, regulation is needed to uh, be able to uh, provide uh, customers, uh, citizens with some buffer in those difficult times. So what uh, we are going to see is uh, the uh, withdrawal. Uh, The question for uh, me right now is how much withdrawal are we going to see during the winter season? The unknown is how cold is going to be winter. And for me, basically, what i'm uh, the way i view this is uh, if we at the end of the winter have more than 50% of our storage full then we are okay for uh, summer because the summer injection will be easy again we will have to be above 90% for next uh, march and uh, ne- next uh, november but if mm-hmm. we are below uh, 50% this is going to be more difficult because we will be at a time where there won't be so much uh, new uh, project coming online and there will be more demand worldwide. So the, the, for me, the main question is how cold is going to be winter. And this, I think we will have it to uh, to leave it to Mother
0: Nature. <laughs> and Sophie, something to add?
1: Yes, to residential demand is, of course, very important during winter, we all know about that, but uh, what is also very interesting is the fact that industrial gas demand has not recovered at all. Uh, Looking, for example, at industrial gas demand in Germany, uh, this year it has been basically at about 20% below the average of 2018-2021, so this is really a very strong reduction of industrial gas demand. And this is the example of Germany, but you can see pretty much the same things in other countries, maybe at different rates. So this is a fundamental question. What has happened to industrial gas demand? Uh, Has there been some switching? Has there been some permanent destruction? I can see uh, looking at some annual reports that some people are saying that there production has been replaced by imports, for example. So that is potentially a concern for the future of our industrial activity. So that's one thing. The second thing is that last year, we were particularly unlucky uh, regarding nuclear and hydro generation. And one of the reasons why we didn't manage to reduce gas demand in the power generation sector was because of these two elements. And uh, the increases in uh, solar and wind were not sufficient to compensate for a decline. Now we are looking at 2023 and the picture is totally different. Well, okay, nuclear is still... Uh, downward, we have seen some improvement in France. However, there is, of course, a decline in Germany uh, Mm -hmm. because we shut down three additional nuclear power plants in April. Uh, However, the situation in hydro is much better. Uh, It's improving slightly. And uh, well, we have seen quite a lot of rain over the past 30 days. I think uh, in France, we have had 30 days of rain. So uh, (laughs) it's definitely improving the situation. It's probably too much rain, as you can see, with the floodings in the north of France. Um, And also, we are seeing an increase in wind generation and solar generation. But for me, uh, the most stunning fact is the fact that power demand is decreasing quite substantially uh, across all countries. And this is actually what is mostly driving the reduction in coal-fired generation and gas-fired generation. So Mm -hmm. to sum up my two points, Gas demand in the industrial sector is down and is s- not so much recovering. Recovering a little bit in some countries because prices in Europe have come down. Gas mm-hmm. demand in the power generation is coming down as well, but for different reasons.
2: What? Sorry, go if ahead. I can add on, on, on this one, I, f- I fully agree. I mean, uh, 2022 was industrial demand destruction, 2023 is... Uh, Uh, gas for power uh, not being there minus minus 19 percent and you rightly stated uh, and so that there was this uh, uh, lower um, power demand which for me translates in a very simple world recession we we've Mm -hmm. we've been in recession in 2022 in 2023 when i say we've mostly germany and the interesting thing is uh, uh, if you do not have your own energy and if it's not affordable and secure you will keep being in recession. And, and I think that's the main message for me uh, from what Sophie stated 2022 recession, 2023 recession. Question is, are we going in 2024, 2025, 2026 for the recession, or are we going at some stage to wake up and understand that we need more energy, uh, affordable and secure.
1: And affordable is very important and interesting because we have had all these debates about the price of electricity. Uh, There was an agreement in France. I mean, it was a a particularly tense battle between the prime minister's office, uh, the Economic minister with Mr. Le Maire, the environment minister with Mrs. Panier Runachet, and of course, EDF CEO. And uh, finally, there had been an agreement at uh, 70 euro per megawatt hour. But uh, this is not making everybody happy because, of course, when you are comparing with the price of the RN, uh, which is a price at which a certain quantity of nuclear electricity is sold to a certain number of um, other players than EDF, you know, this is much higher. So uh, some smaller users are not very happy with that decision. But um, I think the government wanted to basically get a a compromise between uh, what people were asking or consumers were asking and the fact that you need also to Well, to pay for the development of the next generation of nuclear power plants whenever this is going to happen. And we are finding exactly the same discussion in Germany as well uh, with Mr. Habeck, who is also very keen uh, to have a relatively low price, in particular for industrial users. And we are going back to exactly that very same question, which is how do you basically support some users? But the question is which ones, and in particular in mm. Germany, it seems to me that uh, the choice has been made uh, to support the industrial users, maybe at the expense of residential consumers, which may or may not have a backlash eventually. And this is particularly interesting to see all these discussions about, uh, I mean, electricity prices in the context of a massive push towards electrification. So we want to increase uh, the uh, electrification rate in transport, in industry, in residential heating. And as you have seen in Germany and in France to some extent, and I'm sure in other countries, there has been a little bit of pushback against uh, the deployment of heat pumps, because for some people, they are pretty expensive. But there is also a very important question mark about the future of hydrogen, because hydrogen requires electricity, and electricity at 70 euro per megawatt well, that means that uh, hydrogen is not going to be particularly cheap. So, hence a question mark. What are we doing uh, in terms of hydro- hydrogen development, especially since you know there is a sale price and then there are taxes, etc., and uh, cost of uh, connection. So, uh, there are a lot of question marks uh, that are being raised right now with all these discussions.
0: Uh, sorry,
2: and I think if, if I may add, I mean we've seen this in the UK with. Uh, Uh, Pricing is a contract for difference for uh, renewable uh, new project being increased massively. So I I Mm -hmm. think, I mean, when when we are talking about affordable, I think we we have two elements uh, of this coin. One is energy prices will be higher for longer. Uh, and, and if I had to very, uh, sum it up very, very easily, I mean, we were in a 50 euro per megawatt hour electricity. We, before COVID, we are now in 100 euro per megawatt hour electricity. We were in a $6 per million BTU gas. We are in a $12 per million BTU long-term prices. And, and, uh, and, and, and you can go on uh, on all, all the others. So that's one part. And, and what Anne-Sophie mentioned is very important you have to please your constituency, you have to be re-elected, or you have to avoid gilets jaunes, yellow vests. And when you look Mm -hmm. at it, I think there there is a massive amount of subsidies that have been given. I mean, the European Commission claims that in 2022 alone, the European uh, European countries and the European Commission all together spent 390 billion euros uh, for uh, fuel subsidies. I mean, that's absolutely insane. Uh, 390 billion euros is uh, just to make sure that people are not falling into fuel poverty but at the end of the day this is not sustainable uh, there will be a time where the debt will not be able to uh, uh to to uh to go up up and up again and, and i think this is also what the uh, french economic minister stated clearly when he when he came out with 70 euro per mega tower he stated and i quote him france had uh, subsidize electricity prices by 40 billion euros, which is perhaps in a, not exactly in nine ways what the EU has as a number, and this is not sustainable, so I have to have a higher electricity prices. And, and I think we are at this inflection point. We uh, Policy people now cannot hide themselves from say, stating to their constituency the green transition is going to cost a massive amount of uh, Uh, of euros, you will have to pay by the way. And so the question is how do we go uh, forward from this? And and we have an election in uh, the uh, Netherlands uh, this week and maybe the answer is not going to please uh, the uh, green agenda.
1: Well, and we have also the European elections next year, and honestly, this is the one which worries me quite a bit because, you know, in certain amount of countries, we have seen uh, the rise of populist parties, and these populist parties, usually, they do not tend to have a green agenda. They tend (laughs) to be against, win me, against anything which can basically bother people. And it's true, I mean, I fully agree with you, Thierry, I mean policymakers have now, to be honest, vis-a-vis citizens, that uh, energy prices in general, all of them are going to be much higher also because there is going to be a carbon element which has to be paid. I mean, we have not even mentioned the fact that, you know, the ETS is going to be broadened and is going to include residential and transport sectors in a couple of years from now. And this is going to have a massive effect on people's uh, electricity and, I mean, energy bills in general. So one way to help them, help especially the poor citizens, is to try to reduce demand, and but reduce demand in the sense that it's not that you are giving up on comfort, but you are trying to be more efficient. So not trying to do what we did last year, which was really, okay, we reduce uh, our consumption to to the absolute minimum, but really teach people that energy is something which should not be taken for granted, that it has a cost, that it has a price, and that you need to uh, use it in a better way. But you need also to help people achieve these energy efficiency gains, either with insulation or other ways. I think there is, in general, a lot more energy education needed. I'm, I'm quite surprised, you know, that I mean, at, at least in France, you know, um, I don't think um, students or at least uh, young kids are taught about, you know, how much energy costs in general. I had to explain to my daughter uh, yesterday um, because she, 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 she's um, she's learning about mobility and, you know, soft mobility, mm-hmm. etc. and using the bike instead of the car. And I asked her, do you know how much is a liter of gasoline? she didn't know and I tried to explain with the example of her aunt who has to take her car uh, to go to work and is doing about 100 kilometers per day thankfully she has also uh, she's also able now to work from home a little bit but you know that it's basically costing her aunt about uh, 14 euros to go to work wow and, and then you know suddenly she understood what it means so that was an example with an oil price and a gasoline price and mm-hmm. a car, which, of course, talk to people. But I think in general, you know, kids should have an introduction to Energy 101 at a relatively young age. My daughter is 10. I think it's a white age because from at that age, you know, they, they start to understand um, cost, prices, etc.
0: Well, frankly, as I mean, someone who doesn't drive, that that cost is surprising to me as well.
1: <laughs> 100 kilometer, And, you know, she could take the train. But the train is never running. Always, always on strike. Not reliable at all. So, I mean, if she wants to be on time, she doesn't have a choice.
0: Sure, sure. Um, okay, I, I just uh, move to Russia briefly. I mean, we've talked. We've talked about uh, you know EU pr- proposals within the EU to to ban uh, Russian energy Before, um, don't want to spend too much time. On that because we've we've already looked at it. Um, but these uh, us sanctions on uh, Arctic LNG too. I wondered if either of you had any thoughts on on the impact that those measures would would have um, for 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 that project and and uh, Russia's Lng ambitions in, in general
1: um, So what was interesting was that the sanctions were not on existing Russian LNG but on a new LNG project. So the US is signaling to everybody who is currently importing Russian LNG and might find that, you know, the global LNG market is tight enough. We are not touching that. However, they are touching one of the largest projects, which is expected to come online within the next year, because the first train of Arctic LNG2 was expected to start uh, in January 24. Now, Is it going to be delayed? Um, I don't think so, but I do not have a lot of reliable information. Uh, Mm. What I think should, uh, I mean, what we need to observe is the reaction from the Japanese and from Total Energy, who have uh, contracts. The Chinese, I think, uh, are going to politely ignore the sanctions and (laughs) take the LNG no matter what, with all due respect. Mm-hmm.
2: And I, I think what the, I mean, I've always viewed the U.S. as uh, a state that's very good at sanction. It's, it's an industry sanctioning in the U.S. and and so they are good at it. And so they know, uh, if, even if sanction at the end of the day never change any regime, we never managed to to have any regime change the sanction. But they, 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 they in the last thirty years understood how to put uh, some salt when uh, on. Uh, on, on element when it was uh, needed, and so what they are doing here, they are putting the the light on a project where, as you rightly stated, and so uh, Total Energy, or the Japanese want or uh, the Japanese wanted to be very quiet, and uh, and, and interestingly enough, uh, if, if if you were looking at those uh, two companies, they were barely stating they were in those projects any longer, and so the, the, the U.S. is putting uh, some light here, uh, telling them, hey guys, and um, you're, uh, you're looked into. And uh, mm-hmm. then the question is what are they going to do as Anne-Sophie stated, but also what um gas companies in Europe are going to do. Some may say, well, I don't want to touch an Arctic to LNG cargo, which will make mm-hmm. the system more complex. So what the US is, is doing, I think it's an interesting example in terms of economics and geopolitics, putting the light here saying, well, we are looking, what are you going to do? And uh, if we are not pleased with the outcome, then uh, we will go one step further.
1: Just mm-hmm. to build upon that, I was told by some operators of gasification terminals in Europe, we definitely hope that there is not going to be a single cargo from Arctic LNG2. Yeah. To...
2: So, so I, I really think what, what, what matters here is who touches the money because the, the US follows not the gas, they follow the money. And mm-hmm. so uh, you may have, as I, uh, I have the same information as and so, I mean, you may have re-gas terminals in Europe saying, well, guys, um, no, um, we, we, we don't have the uh, uh, security in terms of US sanctions that we can do this. So we don't want to do this. And on top of it, we are a regulated company. And so therefore, the revenues we are getting from this is way too uh, small to take this kind of risk. So I, I, I think... They are making this interesting case and they are de facto making the whole LNG industry aware of this and have to take a position. You cannot hide any longer. There is a light. The U.S. light is there. You cannot hide. You will have to take a position and this position will be analyzed in Washington, D.C.
1: Mm -hmm. And then what is going to be super interesting to see and whether we are going to see the same situation as in the oil market where, you know, there is Russian oil going to some countries, which then send it back to Europe. Are we going to see this Russian LNG going to China and being exported to Europe, as this is already happening? And then who is going to have to track the molecules, which of course, you know, do not have a very little flag? I mean, is it Russian Mm -hmm. LNG that you have re-exported or is it uh, LNG coming from another country? I mean, it's going to be a headache for some people. And I, I can sense that there will be some people arguing one way or another.
2: Uh, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, uh, and on top of it, it will be less efficient because your cargoes will have to go to China, which is Arctic 7 uh, cargoes, and then uh, come back on, on another cargo. So, so you, you're creating tension in a system that, as Anso stated, where is already tight.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it seems like you both had a lot to, to comment on that. Very interesting. Um, let's now turn to Asia, the market there. Um, key developments since we last spoke, and uh, the outlook.
1: The same as before, I would say. I mean, uh, Asian LNG demand. So in China, it's up. Uh, we just uh, got the numbers for October. It's uh, increasing year and year by about thirty percent, and uh, it seems that we are going to have an increase of LNG imports. I mean, right now it's about between eleven and twelve percent. So depending mm-hmm. on uh, December and the actual number for November, we may beat that range, which means that uh, we are not back to twenty. 21 levels, but China is de facto going to be the largest LNG importer in the world. Uh, There is also increase of LNG imports in Southeast Asia. And this is somehow compensated by the fact that in Japan, uh, because a certain number of nuclear power plants have restarted or are restarting right now, uh, LNG demand has been done. Uh, What is also interesting is that uh, the weather uh, for the moment seems to be still mild in Asia, and that we are seeing some companies, in particular the Chinese, signaling their interest in re-exporting some cargoes to Europe. So the situation in Asia is okay-ish, but we should always be careful because if there is a cold snap uh, like we had two years ago uh, in Northeast Asia, then uh, the picture is going to change dramatically.
2: Yes, what I would say is we had a 2023 year of two halves. Uh, The first half, uh, we in Europe increased our LNG uh, intake versus 2022 because we had way less Russian pipe gas. So it makes completely sense. Since um, July, we are receiving more or less the same amount of Russian pipe gas than last year. So since uh, August, uh, September, it's around those two uh, BCM per month. And so, therefore, we need a little bit less LNG. And so, the LNG that we are receiving in Europe is a bit less, I would say, than 2022 uh, since um, uh, September, October. Uh, but as I uh, so stated, the, the, the risk is it could be tight somewhere, and China and Europe have winter at the same time. So, the uh, the risks are on, I would say, on the energy market. They weren't uh, until um, September because. Uh, loads of LNG was available and we were we were in summer and we had a warm winter last year, which now begs the question about how cold is going to be winter. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, um, let's move now on to policy. Um, so the EU methane re- regulation, uh, that's something to talk about, um, and also the outlook well, what what are you both expecting from uh, COP28? Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's not far off now.
1: It's not far off. Um, I, I mean, I would like to expect uh, much more on methane emissions uh, following what has just been released in uh, Europe uh, last week. Also some um, Moves in the United States, some very small steps in China as well, uh, and also because since this is happening in the UAE uh, and Adnoc or gas as an integrated system, you know, uh, they could also be in a position to make a big announcement. I know that right now uh, they are a relatively small player in terms of LNG exports, but they want to be mm-hmm. slightly bigger in the future uh, with a planned project. Honestly, they are like their neighbor Qatar, in an ideal position to really tackle uh, their methane emission because they control absolutely everything. So I think, you know, for me, the spotlight uh, should be on them to to do something, to lead by example, and we are talking Mm -hmm. about, you know, the gold standard of OGMP 2.0, I think they should set up a platinum standard where they are doing so much better and they are putting themselves at the level of Norway, for example, which is really, really at the bottom in terms of methane intensity, at the bottom in the right sense, of course. Mm I try to be hopeful because, I mean, <laughs> methane emission has been the hot potato in the gas industry for almost a decade. We need to tackle that. Sure. We know the impact on climate change. We know the impact on climate. We need to do something and we can do something. It's not like the technology is not there. We, we, and, and we need also to get better data and we need to make people accept that there will be people watching over their shoulders and verifying that the data is accurate, which might be complicated in some jurisdictions. Well,
2: uh, I, I, I fully we agree with, uh, and so what I would add is two things. First of all, it's 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 a huge problem, and the industry doesn't have a, a very good uh, standard in, in this. Uh, let let me be very clear. I mean, uh, uh, the first time we've heard about methane emission was in twenty seventeen. I think an nine year report. Uh, the industry should have, from day one, solved this, uh, whatever the cost was. I mean, it's 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 uh, a no-brainer, and we are nearly a decade after, and the industry is still deciding: is it what's the gold standard, the platinum standard, or whatever? And so, um, once the industry doesn't do this, um, it needs regulation. And regulation needs to be tough. We go back to my uh, storage level. I mean, it's because the industry was telling us, well, storage will be full because we believe in markets. Well, uh, Gazprom arrived and storage weren't full in 2021. And so we had this tough regulation. So I commend the EU for having uh, this uh, tough regulation. It's not going to please industry, but tough luck. That's, That's the way it works. Um, And I agree with Sophie, this methane emission is going to be extended and so therefore at the end of the day, we will have the uh, carbon and methane emission footprint of any molecules coming into Europe, that's that's the the basis, we know how to do this, I mean it's going to be easy to do with blockchain or whatever, And, and at the end of the day, Everybody needs to do better, uh, be it myth and mission, be it flaring in, in the U.S., being in other places. And so um, we uh, the industry has waited way too long. A regulation is happening. They'll have to live with it.
1: And what will be particularly interesting is whether Japan follows Europe. Uh, I think we can bet on the UK being relatively aligned with this position, um, mm-hmm. you know, in any case, they are literally within the, the European Union system. I think Norway well, doesn't mind, they're already, you know, like uh, very good. But if Japan and maybe Singapore, because you know, uh, Pavilion, for example, had a contract with Qatar where they were requesting as uh, a greenhouse gas emissions, so clarity on that. If these two countries are saying, okay, uh, we align ourselves with with uh, European Union, uh, this is almost half of um, LNG imports. Mm-hmm. So that could make some things move. I, I would bet on these two countries first, and then maybe uh, other countries eventually are going to align themselves with the European Union. But that would basically signal to LNG exporters, OK, guys, you have to do your homework now and rapidly.
2: And, and unfortunately, on the other side, I mean, uh, it's uh... Uh, it will increase costs, and again, we go back to the same thing as before, but it, it's for climate, and uh, it's it's one way consumer will have to pay a bit more for this, and again, we need to be very honest vis-a-vis uh, consumers, it's not going to be completely for free this, this thing. About.
1: Well, this is going to be interesting how this is going to be included in existing contracts. But uh, if I can go back uh, to what the IAEA says, I mean, they say that about 40% of the current methane emission could be basically, uh, you know, cancelled at no cost because, you know, you are capturing the gas and you are effectively reselling that. But you need to, of course, put, it, put those measures in place.
2: Yes, as long as you have the export capacity, as long as you have the pipe capacity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, I I, I I I I would slightly disagree with the forty percent, but it needs to be done. So That's, that's uh, for me a, a no-brainer today in today's world. Uh, mm-hmm. The second question, perhaps, was on on COP twenty-eight, well, where I'm I'm like, and uh, Sophia, I'm. I'm uh, I don't expect anything Uh, perhaps uh, contrary to the others i'm starting to be very pessimistic um because um u.n is becoming irrelevant in in many of its ways i mean u.n was built to look at wars i mean i think in the last um, 12 months or 18 months or 24 months i don't think the u.n has any track record in, in solving any of those um, and, and the UN on the other side is be, be, getting more and more vocal, not doing anything, but they're getting more and more vocal. So, which uh, makes it completely irrelevant. And on, on the COP28, I start to to design what I call the dystopian scenario. Um, I believe that if we continue to follow those uh, uh, silly routes of the IE net zero uh, scenario or, or those where you uh, constrain supply uh, and you put more power in the hands of OPEC, because this is what the net zero uh, scenario does in oil, uh, you mm-hmm. reduce uh, the financing for uh, gas. Well, um, and at the other side of the uh, equation, you have people that are not willing to uh, curb demand And um, I will say that my uh, dystopian scenario starts in Germany, uh, because uh, what we've seen in Germany uh, is um, exactly what I would call a a demonstration by absurd. I mean, there is less energy available. It's more expensive. They are giving subsidies. They've decided, as Anne-Sophie stated, to uh, close further nukes in in the middle of this worst energy crisis. And now what has the... um, Economic Minister of Germany stated back two weeks ago, and I quote him from from my mind: "Is I will not phase out coal if I do not have an alternative, affordable and secure fuel." And 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 if you're Germany and you've greenwashed the system for years and years and years, uh, what do you think the Indians, the Bangladeshi, or the Pakistani are understanding? What they're understanding is go back to coal. And uh, what I think is, uh, at the end of the day, if we are ruled by somebody uh, that is uh, the uh, executive director of the IEA, or perhaps uh, I will call him Sultan Fatih, at the end of the day, uh, we will have people moving uh, into coal. I mean, coal production in uh, India has increased by 10% last year and is going to increase by another 10% this year, and the coal minister of India has uh, increased the targets of coal production in India for 2030. So at the end of the day, uh, people will need energy and will move back to coal, which is absolutely insane for climate. So this is my dystopian scenario, but my dystopian scenario has, unfortunately, more and more uh, probability of uh, being uh, the right one versus the IEA net zero scenario which is absolutely a disaster for climate. But again, I really think we need to be completely honest. Uh, we need to uh, make sure that it's not going to be dogmatic. It needs to be pragmatic and pragmatism comes with small steps. Otherwise, uh, I, I, I bet that we are going to see a coal being used in Germany for longer than what the German government is telling us. And I bet we are going to see in uh, Asia uh, coal being used for security of supply because they can't afford the price of gas. They don't trust us in, in our energy transition. And so in a failed energy transition, you go back to coal. That's I think is perhaps the most likely scenario to happen after COP28. Mm-hmm.
1: So let me build up on that. Uh, I mean, this goes in the direction of something that I have mentioned in the past, which is, you know, we have been telling over the past two COPs, we need to move away from coal. First crisis in Europe happens and what uh, takes place in Europe is an increase in coal generation for security of supply reasons. But as Thierry mentioned, you know, what is the optic of that for people who have basically nothing? Uh, We also took away uh, the LNG from a certain number of Southeast Asian Countries, we have been telling African countries not to invest in natural gas, uh, in particular for their own needs. But first, crisis happens, and we have seen uh, many heads of state going to a certain number of African countries, in particular Algeria, Egypt, Senegal, Angola, Congo, etc., asking, "Can you please, mm-hmm. please, please develop uh, more gas so that we can get more gas uh, in Europe?" So you know. Um, We cannot say uh, one thing and do completely the opposite. I mean, this is not consistent. And this is exactly what I think a certain number of policymakers in developing countries are not happy with when they are looking at what is happening in particular in Europe, but also in the West in general. So there is a discrepancy between what we say and what we do. My second point is that one very important topic in, uh, at COP28, is going to be climate finance. I mean, we need to mm-hmm. make climate finance more affordable for developing countries. It's not possible that you know, whenever you want to finance something in Africa, Southeast Asia, etc., it costs you so much that this is basically not making any sense to invest. So this is one absolutely crucial topic. Uh, there is, you know, there, there, there will be discussions about whether the Countries, the, the, the rich countries, the Western countries, are indeed going to give you know the 100 billion uh, finance which was promised in 20, uh, uh, about uh, when was it 2015 and which which was uh, has never been achieved as well. So that's mm-hmm. another thing. What I'm concerned about. Um, is whether there is going to be a rift between the developing world and the developed world because, indeed, they want to be able to consume more, whatever it is. So if we help them consuming more clean energy, that's good. But there is indeed a risk that they are going towards coal, which is in any case not the right thing to do. And let me give you an example on how dogmatic some of the institutions are. So I was at the FT conference in London at the beginning of November. There was a panel with a certain number of representatives from some uh, European investment banks. I said, in Africa, there is about 30 BCM of gas, which is flared. The, The CO2 is going into the atmosphere no matter what. How open would you be to finance projects to help capture that gas so that we use that gas to produce fertilizer, which therefore increases food security? And if you have a bit of spare money, maybe you can also consider uh, investing into CCUS, but of course, you know, you would not be able to translate that cost on the end user. Mm The answer was that they went back to the gas fire generation, etc., stating what, you know, their policy was telling them to do, which is, oh, you know, we don't really uh, uh, finance these kind of things, blah, 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 blah. This was not my question. I was talking about food security. I was talking about fertilizer production. I was talking about uh, basically addressing a waste of energy and a waste of CO2. And, and they couldn't even address that question because it's gas, because dogmatism, no gas, whatever. And this is completely stupid with all due respect to all these institutions. And, and this is exactly the wrong message that we are sending to people who right now have a problem buying fertilizer because this is too expensive for them. I mean, look at the situation in many African countries because of the war in particular, because you know many countries were importing fertilizer or maybe uh, other products from Russia and Ukraine. Or crops. So we need to get out of that, because otherwise mm-hmm. th- there, will be, there will be a rift. There will be a rift uh, between people saying, I'm sorry, but you know, whatever, uh, this doesn't make sense.
2: Yes, and and, and I agree. I mean, the, the rift already started, I think. Uh, uh, I mean, the global south doesn't trust us uh, any longer. I think that uh, uh, I, I was shocked when I was when designing my dystopian scenario to, to see that not only were we preaching to South Africa to uh, phase out coal, but if you look at who is the biggest coal producer between the EU and South Africa, you'll find out that it's the EU. Uh, so uh, I, I, again, it seems, uh, I, I'm not a coal analyst, so I had to go through the data. Uh, so mm-hmm. so I, it, it seems that we, we, we are, um, lecturing uh, dogmat we are providing dogmatic solutions that do not work and then when they do not work we have the money to be able to solve our own problem because as and sophie stated last year we've taken the lng out of the hands of the uh, indian the bengal the pakistani but we've subsidized our own people so on the other side they had uh, blackouts and no subsidies. So that's that's the way uh, things happened. If you look at the um, uh, reports on subsidies, I mean, out of the uh, 800 uh, uh, billion dollars that has been uh, subsidized uh, last year, most of it was coming from Europe. Uh, and mm-hmm. we are preaching to those countries, you shouldn't have uh, fossil fuel subsidies. I mean, 124 uh, billion uh, euros went into fuel subsidies in, in Europe. I mean, it's so insane if you look at the way we subsidize our business in, in our, our energy in Europe, is that if you look at the subsidies and you compare it per fuel, we've subsidized something like uh, $15 per barrel of oil consumed in Europe, $15, so nearly more than the cost of production, $4 per million BTU gas, more than the cost of production and 55 euro per megawatt hour electricity. So those are the kind of thing and, and those people on the other side of the planet cannot afford not even to pay for this. And, and, and so this is why I believe uh, my dystopian scenario um, is unfortunately going to start very soon. And and, and again, if you look at the Global South, remember that one of the uh, big countries that is holding a lot of uh, coal is Russia. Uh, Russia isn't a a big exporter, but perhaps because we've sanctioned coal from Russia, perhaps Russia will also understand that they can play with the Global South, providing coal and exporting coal is not so much difficult. I mean, you need a railway, fine. Russia knows how to build railways. So (laughs) I, I, I believe, uh, we, we we are in for a very very tough ride uh, going forward. And on the finance, yes, and Sophie, uh, but do we have the money left? Uh, that's also the question. I mean, when when you're going to say uh, uh, you you need to pay 100 billion uh, dollars or euros for this, I'm not so sure it's going to go on very well in terms of uh, election and re-election. So I think. The question is, maybe we'll end up with a nice wording about finance, but again, remember we've, uh, we've ended with a nice wording on Article 6, I think it was in Paris, and since then we haven't solved it, so uh, uh, w- w- what I look is the outcome, and the outcome are, I think, not very uh, positive going forward.
1: I think, I mean, to be a little bit more optimistic, maybe there might be ways to make finance more affordable to developing countries, Uh, you know, rather than paying uh, eight percent, whatever, you know, that they pay, whatever uh, Western countries are paying. But for that, you need uh, a little bit more mobilization. What I'm concerned is that if your dystopian scenario actually moves forward, we are going to see more and more climate change impact that we are already seeing. I mean, you know, the fires that we have experienced over the summer, uh, the completely crazy temperatures that we are seeing right now in Brazil, and on top of that with the fires, uh, in this, uh, fires, uh, some of them in the rainforest, the droughts that we are seeing in the same countries. I mean, this is particularly worrying. So we may actually not reach totally your disruption scenario because it will take time to invest into all this coal. However, we might actually move to into a disorderly transition more rapidly than we think, especially if the impact on climate happens much faster than we anticipated. And let's not forget that in all the scenarios, there is something which is called hydro generation in particular, which everybody takes for granted, but as we have seen in the past, it should not be taken for granted.
2: It's um, called a dystopian yeah. scenario, so I'm, I'm, I'm not am for am one. <laughs> we going so to depress
1: everybody with <laughs> ahead of COP.
0: I guess um, my closing comments on on uh, COP28 is, on coal, um, would you expect to see any sort of fresh commitments similar to the uh, phasing down pledge that you saw in Glasgow, um, which was not overly ambitious, but even in its modest aims, hasn't you know, efforts haven't really lived up to expectations because of the energy crisis, because of the surgence of coal um, in a lot of places. Um, would you expect to see something like that? And I was also in uh, Ashgabat, uh, Turkmenistan uh, last month. Um, and at this oil and gas conference, there was a, surprising, a surprisingly uh, big focus on, on methane emissions. Um, and as you know, Turkmenistan has had quite a lot of scrutiny in the media um, over the past uh, couple of years about this. Would you expect to see anything, any sort of commitment coming from Turkmenistan there at COP or before COP um, Given that it would see like in in terms of uh, how how uh, COP, how, you know how how you gauge the success of COP, it would seem like a, at least a PR boon if um, you had some commitment from Turkmenistan on methane emissions.
1: On call, ask, coal, ask yeah. China. First of all, I mean, you know, uh, if any country, uh, I mean, China is half of the coal market. So, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever happens in China uh, is going to dwarf anything else which is happening in the rest of the world. Let me also note that uh, when I am looking at the plans for most Southeast Asian countries, when they are looking at, you know, what is going to feed their future power generation, usually there is coal. In the picture, on top of renewable gas, etc., but there is usually coal. Sometimes with CCUS, but usually there is coal. So that's one thing. On Turkmenistan, mm-hmm. okay, uh, given that they are not exporting to Europe, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what I mean, what would be the incentive for them to reduce their methane emissions, and who is going to pay? Or are they just Looking at Europe, saying we could eventually export to mm-hmm. you if you want, and we could replace some Russian gas whenever. I mean, it's you know, it's. I mean, I would not build a pipeline from Turkmenistan mm-hmm. to Europe because by the time it's built, et cetera, maybe our demand would be really down. But whatever. But mm-hmm. who is going to pay for that? I mean, you know, last I checked, uh, the price of gas in Turkmenistan was—is it still zero? Or I think it, I am pretty sure it's <laughs> negligible. I mean, is China interested in seeing Turkmenistan emitting less methane? They are the largest buyer of Turkmen gas. I I am not sure. They have not even signed the Global Methane Pledge.
0: Well, that could be something that they might commit to, uh, potentially.
1: You are really hopeful.
0: I'm not hopeful. I'm just raising the uh, question. (laughs) Uh, Thierry, any thoughts?
2: On, on, on coal, on top of Ask China, I will say, look at what India is doing. I mean, uh, in India, mm-hmm. I mean, they have a coal minister that increased the target of producing coal um, by 60 percent uh, between now and 2030. And this was last week uh, ahead of COP, basically. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and so I really think uh, the, the global South doesn't doesn't care any longer. So yes, you may have uh, ministers flying in, flying out of, of COP28. There might be some kind of, of wording. But again, I mean, remember what we've done in Paris. We knew we were not going to achieve the two. So the wording in Paris changed from two to 1.5 to two. I mean, degree C. I mean, we knew mm-hmm. we weren't going, but we made it. And, and Paris was viewed as a great achievement. Um, So at the end of the day, you you can greenwash the thing in a way it's it's, uh, palatable to the press. But the question is, for me, is uh, really uh, how much CO2 are we going to reduce? And so far, we haven't. We we are, years in, years out, increasing the CO2 emission. So, I mean, so far, COPs have failed. And, and, and this one for me will be just the 28th failure of, of this. Um, on, on the um, methane in, uh, in, in countries that do not uh, sell gas to, uh, to Europe, I would agree with, that. and so I mean, uh, it's going to be very difficult for them to go through this. Um, why should they uh, invest in those? I mean, price for their citizen is, is zero um I'm, I'm not so sure those countries are also uh really uh the first one in line when you're thinking about climate change i mean it's uh, it's, it's more as uh, and so mentioned brazil the island and all those areas so for them really it's not uh, top of their priority list the top of their priority list is to be able to uh perhaps produce more gas and to sell it to china if if they didn't have Enough gas, and maybe they would go for this uh, uh, methane uh, pledge. But as long as they are sitting on one of the biggest gas fields in the world, um, just uh, drill,
0: baby, drill, and that's solve the problem. Unfortunately. Okay, well, thank you both for giving me your insights, and um, thank you everyone for tuning in to Natural Gas World's In a Nutshell podcast. See you next time.